you've got your Bibles, this morning we are in the book of Jude. And uh, he's talking about false teachers. And one of the things I'm learning about Jude is that he's got a very interesting style to him in the way that he writes. Uh, as, a, as a preacher, developing a sermon and preaching, especially Paul, is really easy for me because Paul thinks the way I think. He thinks in kind of a linear fashion. He builds the foundation, and then he builds upon that and builds upon that, and he goes where he wants to go. What I'm finding with Jude is that Jude is, in fact, I kind of wonder, it would be interesting we get to heaven and meet this guy. Uh, he's almost got an artistic idea to him, right? Some of you maybe have that artistic gene. You think differently. You think in pictures, right? He uses a lot of illustrations. Um, in fact, he almost uses three illustrations every time. And today, in one piece, he's going to use six of them. Six little pieces of stories. But it's, it's kind of fun in the way that he, he keeps trying to tie it together. So instead of moving linear, it's almost in sometimes little circles because he'll circle back and grab onto something and, and bring it into what he's talking as he moves along his argument. And then he comes and, but I can tell you from firsthand experience, it's really hard to make sermons out of that, all right? And how, where do you start, where do you end, and all of that type of thing. So we're going to cut off a big piece today, verses 8 to 13. So let's read it together. Yet, in the same way, these men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things that they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay have rushed uh, heading into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast when, you, when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars from whom the, the black darkness has been reserved forever. Now, if you didn't know, and you read that, you almost get the idea Jude doesn't like these guys. Right? These false teachers. And if you were with us last time, we talked about how he kind of gives their MO, their plan. They're going to sneak in unaware. And, and that their conduct, though, is kind of what gives them away and that they live very fleshly. They live for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life, the things of this world. But their condemnation is sure. So now he's going he's gonna to start moving it on, but he's going to circle back to some of these stories that he told us when he says here in verse 8, yet in the same way these men. Now, it's a transitional sentence, and it's sometimes easy to kind of drive by those really quickly, but I don't want to do that. 
Because here's the thing, what you've got to understand is he's giving these distinctive characteristics of false teachers. And the thing that you need to understand, these are distinctive of false teachers in our day. And 2,000 years before in Jude's day, and his argument is, is even 2,000 years before that. Because remember the story, he talked about unbelieving Israel when God told them to go into the promised land, and yet they wouldn't. And it was the 10 spies who were saying it was too big, and the same things are there. The characteristics of false teachers are consistent. They happen the same way. And so he says... In the same way, this is what they do. Also by dreaming, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they revile angelic majesties. The first thing he mentions here is dreaming. Now, it doesn't mean they sleep well at night or, you know, something like that. It's, it's an interesting word. It's only used one other place in the New Testament as a verb form, dreaming. And I think his point is this, is that they build their teaching often off a special knowledge that they've received something from God that you and I haven't gotten. Or they, they've searched out a secret or a mystery of God and it's off of this, this idea of a vision or special knowledge. And the reason is, is you, you look at how this word is used uh, dreaming as a verb. It's only used that one place in the book of Acts. And Peter is, is actually quoting the Old Testament. It says, it shall be in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. The idea is they're going to get special knowledge from God. And of course, Peter's talking about it in a correct way, that God will speak to them through that. But what we're reminded of is that, again, it's the same today as it was 2,000 years ago, as it was back in the time of the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, what we're told, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you, gives you a sign of wonder, and the sign in the water comes true concerning what he spoke, saying, let us go after other gods and let us serve them, you are not to listen to them. Even if, it's, even if somebody has this a dream, this vision, this prophecy, and it and, and it, it proves to be true. Don't listen to them if they're leading you away from the truth that has been revealed. Why? Well, we talked about this two weeks ago because even Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Folk, what we got to understand is this. Does God sometimes speak in visions and dreams to people? And the answer is yes, right? He's done it in the old times. We know he'll do it in the future. That's what Acts 2 tells us. But here's the thing. We now have God's revealed word. This is our authority. This is, this is what we know God has revealed truth to us. And so if, if something, you know, you have a vision tonight, great. Lay it down next to the word of God. And if it doesn't comport with what God has told us in the word, then you've got to understand that what, what you, you thought, what you received is not true. It's not from the Lord. 
And yet what these false teachers do is they come with this special knowledge. I mean, uh, these visions. I mean, we live in a place where there are a lot of Mormons, right? You know how the Mormon church started. Joseph Smith. Vision. Angel showed up. It doesn't line up with the Word of God. It, it, it's an error. I was thinking back to, uh, I don't know if any of you remember this, back in the 90s. Seems like yesterday, right? And it's like 30 years ago. So it happens when you get old. But somebody showed up with this idea and they called it the Bible code. Do you remember, remember that? And it was this almost mathematical equation that if you got into the Hebrew, right, and the Hebrew letters and, and every the sequence of every seventh or ninth or whatever it was, and you put it together, it unlocked mysteries of what was going to happen in human history. And it was amazing how many people got into this. And it's a special knowledge and deeper things and, you know, and hidden things. And it's just, and that's how, that's how they operate. I mean, it was interesting to me. I, I just, on Facebook, you know, people having prophecies about the election last year. Did you see any of those, right? Folk, here's the thing. We have God's revealed word to us. This is truth. And everything has got to be laid next to this. But they're dreaming. And they build it on their dreams. And they lead people away. The next thing he mentions here in, in verse 8 is that they defile the flesh. They promote, we talked a little bit about this before, when he talks about they turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. They, they promote, they live at this this earthly, fleshly lifestyle. Uh, you remember one of the, the pictures that he gave was a picture of Sodom and Gomorrah. And one of the things I meant to mention two weeks ago, and I don't know that I did, at least in every service, but today you and I, when we hear Sodom and Gomorrah from our American Christian roots, we immediately think homosexuality. And obviously it was a part but biblically, Sodom and Gomorrah isn't just about homosexuality. It's about all immorality. In, in fact, uh, you remember the story that he was going to give them his virgin daughters, right? Which, how do you do that? And then his virgin daughters actually slept with their dad, committed incest, you know, who had lived there to, to, to have a child, right? It was just all this immorality. That's the idea. And that's what false teachers do. They live this very fleshly, sinful lifestyle. Then he says this, that they reject authority. And the authority they reject is ultimately God's authority. They don't listen to the word. They don't, they don't let this be their, their rule for life and, and doctrine. They, they reject the authority. And you, again, you think of the stories that he told. <coughs> Excuse me. And he told the story not just of, of Sodom and Gomorrah where they rejected God's authority about how sex ought to work, but they rejected the authority of God. Remember the unbelieving Israel were called to go into the promised land. They said, we're not going to go. The people are too big. They rejected God's authority in their life. What's interesting about a lot of times with false teachers is that they will often splinter off 
of a church. They'll splinter off of a group. Why? Because they don't want authority over them. They don't want anybody to be able to speak in and to, to point out the error of their way. So they, they splinter off. They have the truth. They, they become their own thing. And they can live with not being under the authority that God has put there. The last thing that he mentions here, and this is the, <clears throat> the difficult one. He says, and they revile angelic majesties. Now, what on God's green earth does he mean by that? And have you ever seen a false teacher revile angelic majesties? I think the idea here is that they're, they're arrogant. They, they speak of things they don't know. In fact, he's going to pick that up there in verse 10. But these men revile the things which they do not understand. The angelic majesties obviously has to do with angels. Now, the question is, is it just holy angels? Which some people say, well, you know, Satan can't be an angelic majesty, right? He's fallen. And so how they would interpret this is that when they revile angelic majesties, what they're saying is they're, they're rejecting God's word because a lot of God's word came through angels. You know, you think of Daniel, you think of uh, the angel of the Lord showing up, and, and so God's word. The problem is, is he uses this picture in verse 9, this story of Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And, and what's hard is that story that he quotes there is not in the Bible. It's actually in a, in, a, it was in a Jewish book called The Testament of Moses, which we don't even have the whole thing today, but we just have bits and pieces of it. We have this piece that after Moses died up on Mount Nebo, Joshua had come down, that there was this dispute between Satan and the Lord as to what was going to happen with the, the body of Moses. Could you imagine if Satan could fill the body? He could do a lot of damage. And so... Um, So I think the point of the story is this, that Michael, who's an archangel, who is one of the most powerful things God created, he didn't stand against Satan in his own power. He stood against him in the Lord's power. And, and you have people who come into this false teaching in, in a religious sense. And, and one of the, the things they often go to is that they, they're all into demonism. And, and, you know, I can remember watching back when there was only three channels, but late at night, right, the false teachers would come on. They probably still do because they've got 200 channels now, right? But one of the things that seemed to always be there, you know, they're very charismatic people, not theologically, but they're charismatic in their personality. And all is about them and they're, they're showmen. That's the best way I could put it. And man, one of the things that they often do is they're casting out demons out of everything, right? Everything that moves, the rocks, the trees, the, the sickness, you know, they're just casting out, you know. And, and it, but it's all in the show of how they do it. I couldn't help but wonder, I think what Jude has in mind here, do you remember the story in Acts 19 where Paul has been casting out a lot of demons, healing a lot of the sick, and there are seven sons, the, the sons of a chief priest, 
and they come upon, and they're going to become demon caster outers, right? And so they show up a man full of demons and say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, we command you to go out. Do you remember that story? <laughs> and the demons said, well, Jesus we know, and Paul we're familiar with, but who are you? Right? And, and then he jumps on the seven guys, beats the liver out of them. They basically got out with their life. Was it? They speak of things they don't know. They, they revile things they don't understand. Why? Because, you know, it's all about show. It's all about me. It's all about gaining attention. And, and, and I think that that's a consistent piece that you see throughout Scripture that it's, it's, it's about me. False teachers are arrogant. They're self-focused. The last thing that he mentions here down in verse, uh, verse 10, he says, And the things which they do know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. I think his point here is false teachers act worldly because they are worldly. Now you think about it. When you and I came to faith in Christ, we were living in darkness, right? We were living according to our instinct. We thought this world could, could give what it promised and, and that sin would deliver, right? And, and many of us touched that and we tasted it and we found the emptiness out of it. And then we came to faith in Jesus and not only were we saved, but now the darkness is removed, that the light is turned on. Now we begin to realize that the thing that this world promises doesn't satisfy, right? It doesn't bring joy and happiness. What we realize is that we live not for the things of this world, but we live for the things of the next world, right? We we live for the day when we stand before Jesus and that brings meaning and purpose and all of these things to our life and so we don't live according to our instinct anymore but we now have been changed and we live from the reality of truth but not these men these men are still in darkness they're still living in the instincts they're still looking for the stuff the pleasure the fame to satisfy them and those things never satisfy they just always destroy and maybe you're here today and you're not a false teacher but quite honestly you're still looking for the world to deliver to you what your heart's looking for can I just let you know Many of us would love to sit down and tell you our stories, man. We've, we've been down that road. It does not deliver, but Jesus does. Jesus will forgive you. Jesus will, will give you meaning and purpose and joy in life. Jesus will be the one that you will find in him rich and deep relationships because he removes the darkness. He shows us the reality of what life is about, but they don't do it. I've got to hurry. He gives now three examples. Woe to them, verse 11. Woe to them. For they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the era of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now these are three Old Testament stories. The first one is Cain. It's found in Genesis 4. We don't have a boatload of time, so I'm going to encourage you. Write it down. Go read it. But Cain. Uh, Cain is the son of Adam and Eve. 
Adam and Eve have sinned. They've been kicked out of the garden. They still have a relationship with God, but it's different now. And so Cain and his brother Abel want to bring their sacrifices to God. God tells them that they have to bring a sacrifice of the flock. Well, Cain is not a shepherd. He is a tiller of the ground. He likes the flowers and all the fruit and the produce. And so he, he decides he knows better. He rejects authority. He, he chooses against what God tells him to do. And so when he brings his offering, it's not of the flock, but it is of, it's of the, the land. And God rejects it. And then he gets all upset, and he's mad at God instead of himself, right? There's no repentance, there's no sorrow, there's no, I blew it. And so now he's angry, and he's angry now at his brother for some reason because he did what he was supposed to be told. And now God shows up again and says, Cain, listen, sin's crouching at the door. If you don't master this thing, it's going to take you down. And sure enough, he doesn't listen, but in disobedience, he now kills his brother. And when God shows up again... There's no shame, there's no repentance, there's no, there's no guilt. It's all poor me, everybody's going to hate me, everybody's going to be, it's all about him. It's the example of false teachers, and it's all about them. The second story he tells is the story of Balaam. The story of Balaam is in numbers, and really probably that last chapter, chapter 31, kind of gives us the key. So Balaam was a prophet of God. He really was a prophet of God. When the children of Israel were moving up to the promised land, the king of Moab knew this was going to be a problem. And he wanted Balaam to come and curse them. And so he offered them lots of money and silver and gold and all this stuff. But when Balaam went and asked God, God said, you can't curse them. They're my people. Don't curse them. All right, I won't. So he pouts back to, 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 to the king of Moab. King of Moab ups the ante, comes back. So Balaam goes back and asks again. And, and he keeps pastoring God. So finally he goes. But when he goes to curse him, God will not let him curse. But, but Balaam wants the stuff. And what ends up happening is a very significant moment. And, and again, you get the gist of it in Numbers 31. He wanted the money. He wanted all that the king of Moab would offer, but he couldn't curse them. So he said, listen, I can't curse them, but I can tell you how to defeat them. Take all your beautiful young girls, dress them somewhat seductively, put them down on the fence line, right? Hey, guys, right? And let nature take its course. Sure enough, that's what they did. Before long, all of the Jewish boys are over there, man. And all of a sudden, they're involved in immorality, and they're marrying, and they're, they're, they're wanting to... Do, and God had told them, you can't do that. It's called the sin of Baal Peor. It was, God sends a plague now. But, but that's the point, for the money, for the riches... He's willing to sell out God's people. The third story that he tells is the story of Korah. Korah was a close relative of Moses and Aaron. So he's of the tribe of Levi. He's of the Korath uh, family group. So the priests that actually go in and minister in the temple. But even amongst them, God said there's only one, and that is 
uh, Aaron and his descendants that can actually go into the very presence of God, the Holy of Holies. And Korah didn't like that. Korah, hey, I, I'm a Levite, I'm a priest, I'm of the same family, I should be able to do that. And he had 250 guys that were re rebelling with him. And on that morning of the rebellion, they stand against Moses and Aaron, and God shows up. And God opens the ground so that Korah and his family are actually swallowed alive by the ground. And he closes it back in. And then fire comes out from the presence of God. And toast, roast, whatever expression you want to use, the 250 Levites, priests, who had followed him. They're examples of false teachers. They don't respect authority. They... They lived in defilement. They lived for the things of this world. And his whole point here is woe. Woe. Woe is a strong word. Whenever you see woe in the Bible, man, step, step back. It's, it's the idea God's going to judge. In fact, remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? Woe unto you because you tithe mint and dill, but you, you neglect the weightier things like justice and mercy, and therefore judgment is going to come. You get in the book of Revelation, you got the seven seals and now the seven trumpets. The last three trumpets are called the three woes. Because God now is going to bring together the final judgments on this earth. Woe to these false teachers. Why? Because their end will always be destruction. Their end will always be destruction. Lastly, he now gives, and, and we talked about Jude likes threes, and so he even doubles up here. And he now gives six, I would call them parables. Jesus a lot of times talked with parables. He would take a an earthly picture that everybody understood and he would uh, tie it together with the spiritual principle. And that's exactly what Jude does. So the first thing he talks about are hidden reefs. The love feast was the meal that they would have when they would come together for the table of the Lord, but they'd have this big love feast. And he said they're hidden reefs there and that they look like they're just normal and they look like it's okay, but just like a boat out in the water, if it hits a reef, it's going to destroy the boat. It's going to take out the bottom. If it's transferring cargo, you're going to lose the cargo. You got people on it, you're probably going to lose the people. It's going to destroy the boat. That's what these people do. You, you think everything's calm, but they're a hidden reef. You can't see it. They're going to destroy you. The second thing he talks about, they're shepherds who care only for themselves. In fact, the NIV puts it like shepherds that only feed themselves. They're not here for the sheep. They're not here to tend God's flock. They're the hirelings. They only care about themselves. And they'll eat you to get ahead. Third picture he uses is the cloud without rain. Clouds without rain, the promise of something, but it's empty. What happens when you get a bunch of clouds but no rain? We kind of figure it out here in the desert, right? You get drought. You get no crops. You get famine. That's what these false teachers bring. He talks about barren autumn trees, right? I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in apple country, 
apples always came in in the fall. And that's when all the farmers made all of their money that's going to keep them going through the year because their crop was apples. But it's the fall crop. It's the last crop of the year. And they're barren. Their trees are dead. Good for nothing but being uprooted. They've got no life to them. No sustenance. All they do is bankrupt you. That's what these guys do. Turbulent waves. You know, we think about the waves of the ocean, right? We're thinking Tahiti. We're thinking Hawaii, the nice waves rolling in. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the waves of a hurricane. One of the things, if you've ever been around that, when, when it's that turbulent, the, the beach afterwards is a mess because the turbulence brings up all the trash, the garbage is in the ocean, and it puts it up on the shore. And he says, that's what they are. They're turbulent waves. Then he talks about how they're wandering stars. Or probably the best idea here is shooting stars. In that the stars were given to us by which, you know, we could tell time, by which we could, we could fix where we are. We used to navigate according to the stars, right? Because they're there, they're solid, they're fixed. That's what the word of God is. But these come, they're shooting stars. You ever seen a shooting star? You got someone next to you. You go, hey, there's one. And by the time they look up, they're going where, right? Because they're already gone. It's just a flash in the pan, And he says it's reserved. And Jude's whole point here is this. Guard yourself. Guard yourself. you got to understand there are false teachers. And man, when you think about the day and age in which we live in, in Jude's day, man, they would be out on the street corner. They would, would, you know, what opportunity they have would be to come into a church setting and slowly do that. Today, they've got television, you know, 200 channels worth. They got podcasts, they got radio, they got books, they got the internet, they got websites. They're everywhere. And what I often claim is, listen, we've got special knowledge, we've got special insight, we've got stuff that nobody else knows, and and that appeals to us, right? Because we want to know, we want want to learn, we want to be there. And, And so they claim special knowledge, but it's all... We have it is special because of us, right? There's this arrogance there. Man, one of the first one things you can see as you watch, there's an arrogance. It's all about me. It's all about the show. It's all about following us. The focus is on the things of this world. It's on the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life. It's on the houses, the cars, the bank accounts. It's all of that. When you see that, you got to run. In fact, let me tell you the easiest way. In this world in which we live, to figure out if somebody is a false teacher or not. When you listen and you watch, is their focus on Jesus? Their focus on Jesus. You see, for many, I've watched them. Jesus is mentioned just enough to get you to think that they're not a heretic. But the focus is never Jesus, it's on them. It's on their way of thinking. It's on their new knowledge that they have. Folk, what we are called to do is to proclaim Jesus. 
right? I've even seen this on the conservative side, right? Because, you know, we, we think of some of the way out stuff. But I've seen this even on the conservative side where, where churches get so fixated on the Bible that it almost becomes the idol. And they don't really talk about Jesus anymore because they're all into the Greek and the special knowledge and all this. And they tend to always go back towards law when that happens. But it's not about Jesus. You remember what Jesus said? He said, you search the scripture because you think it'll bring you eternal life. What you don't understand is scripture points to me. It points to me. And that's why we've always got to be about Jesus. There is only one name given under heaven by which we must be saved. And it is the name of Jesus. And that's what we are called to do. We are called to proclaim the name of Jesus. And his word points to Jesus. And so when you come across them, and they don't make much of Jesus, run away. Run away. Focus your hearts, your minds. Focus your mind when you come to the Word, not just for information. Eric shared it last week. What a great quote. But come to the Word to meet Jesus.